Welcome to Cosmetics, the number one destination for all things cosmetic enhancement, skincare, and beauty. You're joined, as always, by aspiring beauty gurus, Ella James and Caitlin Gregg. Hey! Hi! So we've got an exciting episode lined up for you guys today with one of Brisbane's leading dermatologists, Dr. Davin Lim. You may recognize him from his strong social media presence and Instagram page, 101 Skincare, which shares all sorts of skincare hacks. In today's episode, we cover a lot of material, including most common skincare mistakes, the one ingredient everyone should have in their skin routine, diagnosing your acne, how to strengthen your skin barrier, and much, much more. And make sure you stick around to the end, because this is where we get some of the Instagram questions that you guys sent in answered by Dr. Lim. So hope you enjoy the episode and let's get into it. So Ella, if you had the opportunity to ask one of Australia's leading dermatologists any question in the world, what would you say? God, you really put me on the spot here. <laughs> um, I'd have to ask about these little red dots that I've always had on my arms. What red dots? You see? Oh, well, today is your lucky day because... Phoning in on the line all the way from Briz Vegas, we have Dr. Davin Lim joining us. Welcome to the show, Dr. Lim. Ah, hi. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. So in the dermatology world, as soon as we think about red dots on the arms, we always ask, have you had a syphilis test? <laughs> Sorry? <laughs> Sorry, it took you guys a while. <laughs> syphilis, nice. syphilis is just one of those derm jokes. Ha ha. All right, I'm so <laughs> You actually had me. Good joke. Well done. <laughs> Great execution. Yeah, yeah. How's that for an introduction? No, it's just one of those things. Yeah, dinner parties. People will just ask you, oh, what's this rash? And so I, my default answer is just syphilis. It's like um, <laughs> it cuts the conversation short. Um, well, welcome to the show, Dr. Lim. Uh, Dr. Davin Lim is an Australian board certified laser procedural anesthetic dermatologist practicing in Brisbane, Australia. You may have heard him from his well-known YouTube or social media presence where he posts educational content to cut out the hype and mystery of the skincare industry. And don't worry, guys, that was a false alarm. EJ totally knew about this interview and we have prepared a lot of questions. But while I've got you, <laughs> Dr. Lim, do you know anything about these little red dots? <laughs> Right, right. So it could be a lot of things. So if it's on your external arm, it could be something like uh, a light sensitivity. So does it fluctuate with uh, seasons? Does it fluctuate in um, spring? Is it there all the time? I think it's there all the time, but I think it actually might be more obvious in winter. Does that stack in up? Winter, okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, that narrows it down to another 362 rashes you could may have, Yeah. <laughs> We we have this this uh, ongoing joke, yeah. If it's um if it doesn't respond to a steroid, it'll probably respond to an antifungal. So try that, and if it's no better, we'll biopsy it. <laughs> um, Sounds like a good place to start. <laughs> so we okay. have a lot of questions um to ask today, and we thought that we would kick things off with what are some of the most common skincare mistakes that you see. Ah, okay. I guess, you know, with the skincare influencer trend, um, YouTube videos and 
you know, a whole heap of stuff up on both Instagram and blog posts and all. A lot of people nowadays, especially with the skincare industry, they're chucking out actives, like really powerful actives for super cheap prices, you know, and there's a couple of companies, um, you know, the ordinary comes into mind, where for 20 bucks nowadays, you can go to their shop and you can buy three super powerful um, skincare actives. And understandably, patients think uh, or clients think that the more they use, the better it is. So one of the biggest mistakes, in fact, not just white, what I see, but I think, you know, globally, what dermatologists see is a huge amount of irritant dermatitis because people are just using way too much um, product. And probably that's the biggest, biggest mistake. Yeah, I bet you're seeing a lot of that, particularly with the Skinfluencer sort of vibe happening now. Everyone, particularly in COVID, was putting on actives and increasing their skin routine like nothing else. <laughs> yeah, I was like a little home chemist at yeah. one point. You suffered a chemical. <laughs> Absolutely. And at what point in an individual's lifetime is it necessary to visit a dermatologist? Uh, well, that, that's a hard question because I think you have different conditions in different types of your life. So most most often, I think around the teenage years, especially for acne. So remember, most of acne can resolve with you know good skincare, accurate skincare, precise skincare, diet, and um, just the usual lifestyle habits. And then you have a proportion that will go see a GP, and the general practitioner will treat them with, for example, antibiotics or prescription retinoids, uh, topically, and the vast majority of those will improve. But then you have this subgroup of patients, probably, you know, about 15 to 20% where they've tried all that and the acne is still persistent. So I think you get a big peak around adolescence. Um, the second peak probably around young adults. Uh, and that's, you know, working in private practice, uh, doing general dermatology, which is what I used to do about 15 years ago. You have this huge amount of people coming in or population coming in for things like perioral dermatitis and rosacea and all the things that we discussed where <laughs> where it's iatrogenic, basically it's self-induced rashes. Um, and that may be most of the time it's due to incorrect product use. Uh, and then the peak after that, probably your regular skin checks uh, in the you know mid to late 20s. And then usually the late 20s, early, early 30s is usually the cosmetic things. For example, the Botox, the pigment, the melasma and things like that. And then the other peaks uh, as one, you know, basically ages, the 30s, the 40s, 50s and so on. Um, yeah, so th- those are the um, most, most common, common ages one would present to see a dermatologist. Great. And just broadly... What is the one skincare ingredient that everybody should have on their radar? Okay, so apart from obviously from <laughs> from sunscreen, so I think look, m- most derms would prefer something like a uh, retinoid or retinol. Um, having said that, there are some patients with sensitive skin, which we'll touch on later. Uh, retinols or retinoids may not be the first ingredient, but I think for the vast majority of the population, if you're going to do one thing and one thing only apart from using sunscreen, start with a vitamin A. If you have super sensitive skin, start with a low concentration retinol. If you can uh, advance, certainly uh, prescribed uh, retinoids or stronger retinol slash um, retinoids are probably indicated. So that's the first thing. Great. And just moving on, when asking our listeners what they wanted to hear about, acne and pigmentation were the most common concerns. So we thought we'd kick things off with acne. Mm. So how does someone diagnose what type of acne they have? 
Ah, okay. So with acne, I guess it's kind of easy to to understand. If if you have, look, I think it's normal nowadays, yeah, to to have. It's just about normal to have acne. Um, many years ago, uh, when you look at the prevalence, the prevalence now is actually increasing, and due to many things, um, diet's probably one of them as well. Uh, for many years, dermatologists have basically scuffed and said, you know, diet's got no impact. But in the last 10 years, the evidence is there. The last 10, 15 years is pretty solid. So when it comes to teenage acne, you can, I guess, broadly class- classify it as papular pustular. In other words, the good old zits. Um, and that's probably the most most uh, common type of acne, yeah? papular pustular acne or zits. But then all acne forms from the uh, origin, which is your comedomal acne, whether it be whiteheads or blackheads. So most of the time, if you look carefully, whether it be cystic acne, nodular cystic acne, or even uh, papular pustula, you always find the comedones. So those whiteheads and blackheads, they're pesky, but chances are they do not scar unless you pick. So we've got that kind, we've got the, the pustular acne, and then you've got the big volcanoes and the cysts and the nodules, which uh, you know, you've seen those before, and that's the nasty type of scarring acne. Um, and then you can classify it according to age as well and, and you know, sex. So females, for example, have the adult female jawline hormonal acne, and then you can classify acne as well uh, in regards to uh, the location. So you can have truncal acne. And that's a new buzzword, you know, bacne, uh, which has been a new buzzword for the last decade or so. And and just on the back of that kind of hormonal acne, that's um, something I definitely have experienced. Is there any way that, you know, if you know your cycle, you can kind of do anything to prevent it coming on a week out? Yeah, 100%. So um, that's something we always try to encourage patients to do. Um, so, for example, if you know your cycle very well, you know what kind of acne you have, sometimes we can mitigate that. Um, look, first of all, antibiotics probably not a good idea because you're going to build up resistance to that. So, for example, during that time, you might want to do things, many things to actually mitigate the amount of um, lumps and bumps that you get, Yeah, amount of pimples. And that may be, for example, Step up your face washing. You might want to use salicylic acid instead of once a day. You might want to use it twice a day. You might want to grab some azalic acid or niacinamide and use spot treatment. So as soon as you get that little pimple forming, you might want to actually use some sal acid, you know, anywhere between 2% all the way up to 10%, depending on your skin irritation uh, and all the over-counter stuff. So retinols and retinoids, they're designed to actually reduce or prevent any outbreaks. But when you're getting something coming out you probably need the spot treatments and one of the best spot treatments that's always been underestimated i think i just did a, a youtube video i think a week or two ago uh the use of hydrocolloid dressings they're unbelievably cheap and they're unbelievably efficient um so you're looking anywhere between five cents to ten cents per hydrocolloid patch if you have a pimple that's coming up Sometimes you can abort that pimple because the patches can contain actives, for example, tea tree oil, salicylic acid. If you have an old acne lesion, certainly the use of things like, uh, you know, licorice root or even uh, niacinamide can actually uh, decrease or, or basically resolve that lesion a little bit quicker. So heaps and heaps of things to do. Know your period cycle very well. Know what kind of acne lesions you have and at the earliest signs, uh, try, to, try to abort that lesion. Those, just on that topic, those little pads, like what are they called again? Hydra. Yeah, hydrocolor patches or micro patches or, you know, micro darts. I, yeah. I only came across those for the first time the other day and it was someone talking about maskne and they were like putting them on under their face mask. Yes, to, yes. To like prevent the pimples from coming up. 
Yes, uh, so they're great for spot treatments. In fact, someone should say, you know, they should have, they should, someone should invent a hydrocolloid mask so the whole face goes plastered on. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, not a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> and what type of acne, sorry, what type of acne needs treatment versus what types will actually clear on their own? So I guess when we're, with that question, I guess we'll flip it to another question is what type uh, will scar, right? So every single type yeah. of acne, as in patients with scarring acne should actually get treated and treated aggressively and uh, get treated early because once you get scars, especially when we're talking about contour changes, that can be a real pain to actually remove. It, it can be actually removed over time, but the amount of time, effort, money to do so, um, certainly, you know, if you can mitigate that, it will be great. So my first thing is um, scarring acne. That should actually be treated, uh, identified and treated very effectively. The other thing as well, um, in Australia now, you know, you're getting a lot more um, ethnic, um, you know, ethnic diversity is basically increasing and with that, you've got darker skin patients. So either my skin type or a little bit darker. Uh, we get what's known as post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation a lot easier. So basically when you get inflammation, whether it be acne, zits, pustules, the whole lot, um, we go brown and we go brown for <laughs> upwards of a year. So with this, with this subgroup of um, patients, we need to actually uh, get treatments on board very early. Um, otherwise, they'll be chasing their tail literally for five to 10 years uh, before the acne burns out. And so you mentioned gut health earlier and its link to um, skin health and skin concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, what sort of foods or what do you tell people to avoid when treating acne? Yeah, I mean, there's many acne diets. I guess the big well, the easiest one to remember is if it's in a packet, don't eat it. <laughs> so it's like refined foods. So anything which is, you know, for example, instant noodles, um, you know, simple carbohydrates, sugars. When they say chocolate, it's chocolate because of the high sugar content, not the actual cocoa itself. Um, and then the other big group is uh, dairy, believe it or not. So that, that modifies and modulates your insulin-like growth factor levels, IGF levels. Um, so... Yeah, dairy, and that's been shown in many studies over the past 15 years. And are there any specific foods that can help clear acne? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a tricky question because I, I think avoiding foods is the main thing, yeah. Um, but when you really read the literature, I'll tell you a story. Many, many years ago, probably about 30, 40 years ago, um, it was found that Eskimos had very, very little acne. Uh, mainly because they didn't eat processed foods, but they also ate <laughs> polar bear liver. No joke, it's <laughs> in the literature. Polar bear liver contains a high amount of vitamin A, like a mega dose of vitamin A. And in this population, they got um, Eskimos with side effects very similar to patients who've had um, uh, oral retinoids, which is basically sensitive skin, dry skin, uh, dry lips. So when you're looking at food groups, it's been identified decades ago that eating liver, which is high in vitamin A, not that we suggest this, but high in vitamin A can actually help your um, help improve acne. But I guess now if you're being sensible, it's just having a nice, well-balanced diet. If you want to supplement with anything, something like um, uh, zinc, for example, um, elemental zinc uh, and then some fish oil as an anti-inflammatory, uh, that's a sensible diet. But if you want well, to go to the polar bear liver, knock yourself out. 
Yeah, I was saying for everyone listening, next time you're at the butcher, request for some polar bear liver and do your skin a favour. <laughs> so when dealing with acne, what's your personal approach? Do you prefer to use topicals or treatments or are you an yeah, to do topicals or treatments or are you an advocate for oral medication? Yeah, I mean, when I do my IG posts out there to, you know, basically help um, patients out there with acne, I think it's mindful that we try all the benign treatments first. So part of my post is basically saying, do whatever you can, whether it be lifestyle changes, lifestyle modifications, your diet, your um, sensible over-the-counter skincare, whether it be your benzoyl peroxide, your salicylic acid, your retinols, your niacinamide, your tea tree oil, do all that. Remove your makeup every night. Make sure you use a, a you know, don't use a very oily or, or occlusive makeup. And then after that, um, go to your GP. And then dermatologists, I always say, are your last option, your last stop. Um, and you'll hear me saying we prescribe medications, we, we prescribe chemicals, we then prescribe fairy dust. So don't come to see a dermatologist and expect us to go, well, you know what, maybe we get some herbs for you. Um, you know, 99.9% of the time, dermatologists, when you end up at a dermatologist, chances are, unless you've been hiding under a rock, you have tried every single, well, most things out there. Um, so we have a skewed population of patients. Uh, generally speaking, we see the recalcitrant acne, the scarring acne, um, and, you know, for example, the hormonal acne as well. So that's where most derms, generally speaking, when they end up seeing the dermatologist, they, they fail prescription um, medications, including anti-inflammatories, antibiotics, uh, retinols, the whole lot. So we're left with um, either chemical ways to treat it topically. So we might, you know, further adjunctive, adjunctively use um, retinoids in the way we prescribe topically. So your adapalene, your differin, and, and your tazaratine. Uh, or we may prescribe um, clinical strength chemical peels. So either retinoic acid peels, your higher strength salicylic acid peels. Uh, then we may flip to light and laser-based treatments. So things like pulse dye laser, blue light, red light, or combine that. Um, and occasionally we may use photodynamic therapy. And then right at the end of the road, there's um, obviously the oral retinoids, your Accutane, your isotretinoin. Um, yeah. So that's our ladder which we work through. And we process that very quickly when the patient walks in. So it's not that we're not, we don't listen to whatever. <laughs> Generally speaking, it's in your referral and we read that within, um, you know, within 20 seconds, within 10, 20 seconds. Um, and we take a good history and then move it up from there. And how about acne scarring? What's the best way to treat that? Yeah, once again, acne scarring, the whole idea is to mitigate acne scarring. So I guess the, when you look at acne scarring, there's only two types. Well, one side, there's this. When I look at scars, you can look at uh, scars and analyze whether it be a contour change, so whether it be raised, for example, hypertrophic scars, whether it can be divided, atrophic scars, or pigmented. And with pigmented, it's either red or they're brown. Or you can have <laughs> all forms of scarring where it combines both pigment together with uh, contour changes. So in the context of um, acne scarring, at-home treatments, I think uh, there's this you know, there's credibility that at-home treatments, for example, you know, sensible needling at home, micro-needling through a cosmetic clinic. Um, and once you hit usually a specialist, generally speaking, they're pretty tough to shift. So that's when we use things like lasers and um, surgical methods. Can I ask there, slightly off topic, my, the at-home needling, what are your thoughts on that? Because I just see mm -hmm. it all over YouTube and Instagram and think like, 
bugger that. I don't want to use needles at home. Like it, and can like you clean them properly? It just seems a little hairy. Yeah, no, I, I thoroughly agree. Um, but this is why I think giving sensible advice, because look, at the end of the day, patients are going to do what they're going to do, right? So rather than us blanket covering and say, just look, everyone don't use chemical peels at home. Don't, don't muck around with um, acids at home. Don't use a microneedling at home. I'm the other way around. I go, look, <laughs> don't use silly stuff at home. But if you're going to try something, uh, I want it to have a 99.9% uh, confidence interval that it's not going to actually cause more damage. So when you look at micro needles or needles, um, I'm sure you know the length, the variation of length goes all the way from 0 0.1 uh, mil all the way up to 4 mil, right? So it's a huge variation uh, in, this, in the length of micro needles. And even the delivery, whether you're using a stamp, whether you're using a roller, or whether you're using a mechanical device. So I agree, if you're using rollers, probably not a good idea, but if you're using a stamp like a derma stamp, um, I think it's super safe. And the reason why we use that or use that at home is to actually aid in delivery of certain topicals. So what I don't want patients to do is buy a silly, you know, something like a one mil or even anything more than a 0 0.2 mil. I, I, that's, not, that's not on from a safety point of view. But if they invest in something 0 0.1, 0 0.2 mil, and understand that the whole idea is not to actually get into the dermis, but to increase the absorption of actives, then by all means, it's a very safe, cost-effective way that can actually work. So I'm on the other camp where, where I, I say, hey, if you're going to use it, use it in this manner. I'm not saying we, you know, everyone should microneedle. Every, if you want to try something to get more actives into the skin, without breaching your uh, epidermis, without breaching your basement mem membrane and getting bleeding, then by all means, the use of sensible at-home microneedling devices, both effective, cost-effective, uh, and also very safe. And I have one last question on that. We've come across both microneedling and RF needling. Do you have any preference and, like, why? Yeah, so, I mean, I use... I use a lot of needling um, on, on a daily basis. So I guess the way, the way, the way I look at it is, um, okay, so when, I, when specialist needle patients, generally speaking, we want to get um, actives into the dermis. So remember, home microneedling, we want to get actives into the epidermis, the top part of the skin. Myself, when I needle, I want a clear zone uh, with very less, with, with very little coagulation. In other words, very little char, so that I can get the product. And in most cases, it will be a high-strength corticosteroid right down into the uh, dermal layer where the scars lie. So that's my selection for microneedling in the context of um, what I do. RF microneedling, however, is a little bit different, and there's many different types of RF systems. Uh, what RF does is it provides heat, so heat anywhere between 60 to 70 degrees for millisecond, so usually up, up to a maximum about five 600 milliseconds, so half a second, um, and the heat stimulates a collagen. So it's basically like you can call it microneedling with a, with a turbo attached to it. All the add-ons. <laughs> 
This episode is brought to you by Oxygenetics Australia, a product that is makeup and skincare all in one. So many people spend lots of money on skincare and treatments only to put on makeup, which blocks their pores and spreads bacteria. So when we came across Oxygenetics, a foundation which is aloe vera based and draws oxygen to the skin to heal and protect it from free radicals, we jumped on it. Since using Oxygenetics, our skin has been feeling fab. So fab. So slide into our DMs if you'd like to be color matched. And enjoy the episode. Moving on to pigmentation, um, can you explain the difference between different types of pigmentation? Yeah, I think it's one of, it's one of the broad topics, yeah, with, with pigment. And, you know, when you look at the causes, there are well over 200 causes of pigmentation. So I'm actually delivering a talk. Are you guys going to be in Cosmeticon next month? Hell yeah, we are. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll see you guys there. So I'm doing a little talk there on just managing pigmentation. Uh, but a very basic talk on on uh, the differential diagnosis of pigment and how to manage. So to cut a long story short, <laughs> there are many ways. There are many, many different types of pigment. I'm only going to cover, look, common things occur commonly. So basically you have your melasma, right, which is a special form of hormonal pigmentation slash genetic pigmentation. You've got your um, sunspots, which are your lentigos, which are super common. You've got pigmentation secondary to inflammation, for example, acne, like what we discussed, post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. And then, as we touched on before, with a big biodiversity we have in us in Australia, you have um, certain types of pigmentation which occur more commonly in ethnic skin types. So that's what I'll be covering at uh, Cosmeticon. And that kind of talk will probably encompass, you know, 90% of the pigment that we see. It's not going to encompass the whole lot of the rare stuff, um, which you know, mainly derm C. Um, but I think I, if, I, when I, if I can address the common stuff and how to treat it well, uh, I think we've covered, you know, the majority of pigment. Cool. And for, I guess, probably for our audience, the ones that came up the most were melasma and sun damage. Um, what are the mm. best recommended treatments for each of these? Yeah, so melasma is one of those uh, cases where, you know, um, <laughs> It's an old saying, yeah, at the, at the end of the world, only two two things remain, cockroaches and melasma patients, because melasma patients, they generally speaking, they're not, I'm not saying they're anywhere like cockroaches, but they actually, it's resistant to everything, yeah. Um, and, but sometimes simple, simple things like sunscreen can make a shitload of difference. So if you're going to invest in anything rather than buying your, you know, cupboard full of licorice, arbutin, retinols, hydroquinone, phthalates, uh, meladerm, melarase, melacrine, niacinamide, ascorbic acid, a whole lot. Invest in the bloody sunscreen. Um, it's going to cost you like 20 bucks. And not only invest in the sunscreen, learn how to use it properly. It's very hard to actually get patients to use uh, sunscreen, especially for eth- ethnic patients, because we don't have that haptic feedback of sunburn. So we don't tingle when we get too much sun. So I think the darker you are, the harder it is to get patients to use sunscreen. And melasma, unfortunately, it actually affects um, it affects you know up to thirty percent of females, but there's more so in in darker skin types. So you know, getting back to the topic, even when patients see me in clinic, I spend the most amount of time lecturing with sunscreen because we know the scientific papers which have shown if you use sunscreen properly, fifty percent of pigmentation will fade. Like it's a huge amount, <laughs> 50% of patients will fade, will have a significant improvement of the MARSI, the melasma area severity index. So 
50% of the pigment can fade with sunscreen. So from there, uh, like I said, well, I've mentioned all the other pigment inhibitors. If you want something which is uh, safe, cost-effective, azelaic acid is probably the way to go. Uh, and then from there, you look at your specific pigment inhibitors, things like your arbutin, your licorice, um, and your different botanical extracts. And on the back of sunscreen, um, we didn't want to dive too much into it because for anyone listening, we did do a live with Dr. Lim, which is on our Instagram yeah, page <laughs> a, couple of, a couple of weeks ago now. Um, but just a quick question that's always really relevant is what to look for in a sunscreen. Yeah, look, I think I, I'm pretty red-faced because I put out a little post um, maybe about three, four days ago, and, you know, I'm the dumbass uh, uh, thinking that, you know, in Australia the TGA has done specific testings and the SPF ratings, the SPF rating, but, geez, I got it bloody wrong with the Pureto, Pureto post. Have you heard of that, P-U-R-I-T-O, the big scandal in the U.S.? No, no, no. No? No, so basically that's a sunscreen uh, that is has been marketed in SPF 50, um, and then the FDA decided to test it. This is, I think, December 19th, December 20th when they released that. So um, independent testing. So basically when you test a sunscreen, you uh, measure the SPF, which is basically your UVB uh, burn time, yeah? Um, and you apply a specific amount, which is uh, two grams per centimeter squared, and then you test it from there, uh, and you come up with an SPF level. Now, um, FDA tested it at um, 19, not 50. So they've been labeling it as 50, but the actual SPF is 19. I heard that it's quite common that um, you know you have some discrepancies, but it's nowhere that kind of gap from a 50 to a 19. So I assumed, I've always assumed that the TGA has um, done independent testing. Um, but I found that they, in this situation, when they let the sunscreen into Australia, there was no independent testing. So, yeah. So the first thing, so how do I get back on this topic? Yes, um, SPF. The main thing with SPF, you're going to use uh, anything of 50 or above. The reason why I like an SPF 50 and above is not because you've, you've got that high protection compared to an SPF 30 where there's a difference of only of less than 2%. It's because patients use much less. So basically, if you use half as much as what you would normally, as what has been tested, which is basically three to five mils per application face and neck, you half the F SPF. So by logic, um, I always want patients to use as much, uh, as high SPF as possible, not because I believe that it's going to give you that extra protection, but I believe that most patients undercut their sunscreen. So um, a high factor SPF. And then from there, they, they can go into the ingredients and, and things like that. So I think the first the first two things for looking for a sunscreen, number one, cosmetic cosmetic elegance. So I did a paper many years ago showing the cosmetic elegance of a sunscreen is paramount. So it's very, very important to get the right amount on. Uh, if you're going to have a white sheen, um, if it's going to be gluggy, it's going to be sticky, you're not going to use it. <laughs> so there's no point having a bloody good sunscreen with an SPF, you know, with a realistic SPF rating of 150, um, and you're not going to use it as all, at all. So I think the first thing to look at is your SPF, 50 or above. Second, got to like it. Got to use it, got to like it. Try before you buy. Um, make sure you're going to use it every day. And then certainly from there on, you look at your your, um, your other things like your you know your chemicals versus your um, physical sunscreen and, and go, go on from there. 
I think I remember last time you mentioning that if we were all putting on the correct amount of sunscreen, we'd go through a bottle every 10 days. 10 days, yep, exactly. So just to recap, you know, when we look at the guide between for sunscreen applications, it's most of when you read the papers, they say, you know, five mils every four hours. But I mean, to, seriously, no one's going to use five mils every four hours. Um, so I go basically, you know, three mils twice a day, which is realistic. So three mils twice a day, you're going through at least five mils, going on six mils, yes, even if you skim and do two and a half mils. So if you think about a 50 uh, mil tube or 50 mil bottle, uh, that's 10 days yeah, of, of correct sunscreen use. And you're basically undercutting what's in the papers as well for, um, for required recommendations of amount and application times. <laughs> so... <laughs> that's the first question I ask patients when, when they come in. How good is your sun protection? Oh, really good. So I always, it's a leading question. I always go, oh, yeah, bottle. And I've got usually a bottle on my desk. A bottle this big, what, you reckon two months, three months, six months? So they'll usually pick between three to six. So that gives me a really good indication of their uh, of their photo protection. <laughs> uh, and... Another hot topic for our listeners has been sensitive skin. We'd really love to hear your definition of what sensitive skin actually means. Yeah, I mean, I had a uh, IG life with um, Sam Bunting. Yeah, Sam, Sam's a very well-known dermatologist, exceptional dermatologist from the United Kingdom. She's got her own skincare range. Uh, and so we were just talking about skin sensitivities, um, her view, what she sees um, and what I see. And we both agree, like skin sensitivities, when you read the papers, um, uh, I think Laurie Bowman actually in her book um, stated that skin sensitivity, and this stat was taken like somewhere like, you know, 15 years ago. Skin sensitivities at that stage is about 40%. Then you read the new articles, the sensitivities are now 60%. So I never ask patients, oh, by the way, do you have sensitive skin? It's like um, <laughs> it's like a rhetorical question because chances are they're going to go, yes, it's a leading question. So skin sensitivity, there's no doubt um, it's, it's on the increase. And as we discussed prior, it's usually due to a whole heap of um, skincare actives. So basically you're stripping your skin, you're decreasing your skin's irritant threshold. Remember, every single thing that you put on your face where it's got an active or, or chemical, chances are that's going to decrease your skin's irritant threshold. And the more stuff that you put on, the higher your sensitivity, as in your irritancy. So there's a difference between sensitivity for allergies um, and also sensitivity for irritation. So I think the biggest thing is probably uh, too much actives. And then there's a whole heap of different differential diagnoses for sensitive skin, your allergic contact dermatitis, your rosacea, and the other 50 million causes of sensitive skin. In one of our conversations about sensitive skin, I can't remember, it was with one of our guests, and they mentioned that sensitive mm -hmm. skin is often the sign of like a compromised epidermis. And with the right sort of regime, you can actually change this and like build up your barrier. Is that true? Yeah, so I mean, your skin barrier. When you look at inflammatory skin conditions, and and most commonly it's acne. Yeah, so believe it or not, acne gives you skin sensitivity because you've got compromised barrier. So when you think about logically, when you've got you know zits on your face, you, your bloody barrier is compromised because your skin's either excoriated whether you're using too much products or whether from the actual pathology of the condition itself. So 
That's 100% right. Where the vast majority of cases, the vast majority of the cases, um, your skin barrier is compromised. And what you want to do, and, and part of the compromised skin barrier, apart from the actual inflammatory condition itself, is iatrogenic. So what I touched on before, people are just using too much stuff and then uh, compromising your stratum corneum, which is the top part of your skin, right at the protective barrier of your epidermis. Uh, and then that allows all the other uh, chemicals to come in, uh, and that's where you can get irritant, but also allergic reactions. So you want to establish the, you know, the first thing that we do as derms, we want to peel everything back, uh, including the sunscreen, believe it or not. So most dermatologists agree, if you're going to have super sensitive skin, you've got irritated skin, angry skin, the first thing we do is we peel back everything, like the whole lot. Uh, establish barrier function. That might take a couple of days, might take, you know, 24, 48 hours, or it might take a week. Once your barrier function's established, that's when we add things gradually um, and we exclude things like contact dermatitis. So when you say peel it back, you mean like like reduce your, the amount Minimal of products? That yeah, okay, and then you build it up. Yeah, I think I think... In fact, not just reduce. Most of the times, when you see derm, we stop everything um, apart from your cleanser. If the cleanser is okay, and and some and a banal uh, moisturizer, um, and but we stop everything. Um, that's the that's the quickest way to get your barrier function established. Sometimes, if it's you know there's, there's a lot of inflammation, we may use some short course of corticosteroid or wet wrapping or something like that, yeah, to establish barrier function, and then we slowly add things over time, uh, and that's a proper way to do things. Perfect. So you can can you you can cure that type of sensitive skin. Yeah. Look, you can sort it out in most cases, um, and in the cases which are persistent, that's when the uh, medical dermatologist may do something called a patch test. So basically, testing your chemicals plus what we call a European standard battery, um, and basically to see whether you've got any true allergies to uh, chemicals. Most cases can be found out, yeah. Perfect. Okay, thank you for answering on that. And we thought we'd sort of work towards wrapping up and talk about prevention and preventative skincare. So a lot of our audience, or us included, are early to late 20s. Um, so we were thinking, what's the best advice you could give us about keeping your skin in good condition so that we look 20 forever? Uh, maybe me 25 uh. forever. <laughs> I, I thought you guys were fresh out of high school. Really? 20s? Holy shit. <laughs> I thought it was a high school project. Really? Okay. <laughs> yes, Flattery we can get out um, Okay. <laughs> so I think if, if this – look, um, have you ever guys – have you guys ever come across Caroline Hyron's book before, the, the, skincare, the skincare book? No. No. But look, thoroughly worth uh, investing, you know, I think you can buy it on Amazon or eBay for something like 30 bucks or even less. Um, it's, it's, so Caroline's a skincare influencer. She's, her, her background is uh, she's an aesthetician. Uh, she's from the UK. Uh, she's a friend of mine, but I'm not, I'm not, I've got many friends, but I don't usually flog their, uh, <laughs> flog their viewpoints. But her book is just unbelievable. It's, it's basically the whole, it's the concise way of we of dealing with skin um, from a, explained from a layman's point of view. But she's also very short. She's very sharp, um, and she's very brief with her explanations. And I find that you know <laughs> really really like it. Yeah, it's literally the no bullshit approach to skincare. Um, and I encourage if any of you guys out there, if you're really into skin, 
buy that book. It'll save you a shitload of dosh when it comes to experimenting. It'll save you a visit to the dermatologist because you're using too much shit. Um, and literally, it's a thorough, it's a really enjoyable read. She tells it like it is. Um, she'll swear here and there, but it's <laughs> it's an unbelievable book. So getting back to your to your questions about um, what to use in your 20s, I'm in the same, in, in fact, when I read that book, I'm thinking, holy shit, you know, Caroline's like a frigging dermatologist. She's, she's really, really distilled a lot of the um, her product knowledge and her knowledge about skin over the past, you know, three, four decades into, into just really easy techs. So bottom line is this, the whole idea of using skincare, if you want things to like really, really work, you only use a couple of key ingredients, right? And you use it based upon what you want to achieve rather than going, well, you know, this is trending. I'm going to use this particular ingredient because it's frigging trendy. That's, that's bullshit. Um, you basically want to go ABCs, your, you know, your retinol, retinoids, your niacinamide, your ascorbic acid as tolerated. And then you might want to use something like alpha hydroxy acids. Obviously, if you have a skin problem, whether it be melasma, rosacea, or whatever the condition is, that's when you tear your ingredient or your topicals based upon your skin concerns. But for the average punter who's in the who's in the twenties, if you want to maintain your skin, apart from sunscreen, you basically just do the simple A B C and then you use an alpha hydroxy acid. You might want to use a BHA wash. And Caroline summarized it very well because this is how derms practice. Generally speaking, we want to use very powerful ingredients, right? And hence that's why I say formulations matter. But we don't want to use powerful ingredients all the time because you're going to run in trouble. Your skin cannot tolerate that. No one's skin can tolerate um, super powerful shit every day. So what you do is you pulse it, and it, which means you may use, a, for example, a retinol um, three, four, five times a week as tolerated. You might want to use something which is nicely formulated, very low irritation. And then once every week or once every two weeks, you might want to use something stronger. So you might want to use something like a retinoid. Um and you may do the same for your ascorbic acid as well, your vitamin C, and you may do the same for your alpha hydroxy acid. So you're not going to use 23%, you know, AHAs or glycolic every night, but you might want to use that once every week or once every two weeks according to your skin's irritant threshold. And that is how everyone should be practicing skincare, right? A very scientific way of doing things, but also knowing your skin, knowing how much you can tolerate, but also pulsing your, your regime and thinking about things. Maybe a little bit hard for the first two, three, four, five months, right? And it often takes between six to 12 months to understand it. Um, but then once you understand it, man, it's so easy. And you've got your whole life ahead of you. So understanding your skin when you're in your 20s, you've literally got another 60, 70 years of skincare that you really can get precise instead of, instead of uh, experimenting. Love it. Great advice. Yeah, sounds like we'll have to get our hands on that book. Absolutely. <laughs> and so one kind of Brilliant final book we wanted your opinion on to wrap everything up was so JLo recently claimed she'd never had Botox and her cure or she puts all her wrinkle-free skin down to olive oil. Is this true? <laughs> or is this is this a <laughs> myth or <laughs> yeah yeah I, I think i did a post on that recently as well i mean that's you know i'm, I'm sure you guys know frigging olive oil yeah you yeah it's yeah anyway <laughs> so I, I did a scientific post on that saying that 
we, as dermatologists, we do use olive oil. In fact, when I used to do uh, general derm, I used to prescribe olive oil three, four times a day. But in the context of an anti-inflammatory, not as an anti-wrinkle. So to, to clarify things, olive oil, yes, it has its scientific uh, basis. It is a oil which can reduce inflammation. We use that to treat things like sunspots. We may add something like, you know, 5 10% um, olive oil into preparation. We use that to treat eczema, uh, cradle cap, especially in, in, um, in inf- infants. And also things like psoriasis um, is great for things like scalp psoriasis because it can reduce the inflammation. It can uh, moisturize your scalp. So there is science behind olive oil. And I think most derms, especially the older derms, uh, they've used olive oil in many of their uh, compounded prescriptions. So it's still in my hot list for um, you know ingredients when it comes to, to mixing up um uh mix them up compound the creams but when it comes to wrinkles mate there's only <laughs> you either grab the botox with the filler uh or, or lasers or, or operate i mean that's you know when you want to use things that actually work um those are your go-to you won't see you won't see us uh, in, injecting any olive oil or you won't see us you know going oh well, cool on what natural cream we can use <laughs> So it's safe to say J-Lo will not be putting Botox out of business anytime soon. <laughs> no, nah, but I'm sure she's going to launch her own olive oil um, skincare line, which will probably be better than any of the frigging skincare lines that <laughs> any other dermatologist can launch. Yeah, and people will be paying a bloody premium for cooking oil. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Okay, so now we have got some hot questions that were sent in from our very loyal listeners. And we did get a lot, so we did have to pick just the three that were sort of most popular. Mm-hmm. So sorry if it didn't get answered this time, guys. Mm-hmm. I just have to get Dr. Lim on the show again. <laughs> um, so number one, why do I keep getting milia around my eyes? Wait, before you answer that, what is milia? A simple explanation is balls of skin under your skin. So basically, it's just these balls of keratin, uh, which is protein, uh, that lie under your skin, not usually on your skin. Uh, And they occur in certain areas, for example, around the eye area because of many causes, um, including genetic, which is most most important. Um, But also, if you're using the wrong moisturizers, so things like if you're using occlusive moisturizers and you're just using thick, gunky, gluggy stuff... um, that can give rise to milia, and milia can occur as well with certain procedures. So after laser resurfacing where your top part of your skin is taken off, and then as it regrows, you have this ball of keratin or protein under that. Now, the so we touched about um, uh, Caroline Horon's book, and she's got this chapter on milia. I think it's only about two pages long, but still it's a bloody good thing because she guides patients as to how to treat milia, and her summary is this don't as in don't try to do it uh by yourself because it, the procedure itself is actually really easy it's super easy any good aesthetician can do it and, and it's basically just to use a needle uh, you don't want to poke your skin basically you want to just get under the milia flick it uh and then that can easily be expressed so unless you've done it before try not to do it because you'll probably stab yourself or, or go blind and poke yourself in the eye but they're super easy to uh, to remove. So going from there, you can prevent it using um, less occlusive moisturizers. You can prevent it or reduce um, the rate of formation using retinol retinoids. 
um, as well as simple, simple procedures like microdermabrasion. But if you want to go for things like chemical peels, certainly that can reduce it as well. So pretty easy to treat from our point of view, but if you've never done it at home, just be careful, especially if you're trying to watch YouTube videos on people with needles near their eyes. Yeah, I've actually had a few removed in my lifetime. Have you? But I didn't realize why I was getting <laughs> Now I can probably avoid having to have that done again. Right. And what's the best way to slow aging and prevent collagen breakdown? Probably touched on that a bit with the SPF. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, sunscreen's the most important. And we touched a bit as well with when it comes to things like retinoids and um, alpha-hydroxy acid. So if you really – look, if you really want – I think the no-bullshit explanation is basically sunscreen. Invest in sunscreen. Invest in a hat. Uh, if you're going to use a retinoid, use a powerful one, maybe a prescription one, um, once every two weeks or once every week as tolerated, and then get some good AHAs. So everything else that you do, whether it be your antioxidants, your CE, your ferulic acid, your green tea – the whole you know the whole lot um mate that's going to give you very little in the way of um collagen stimulation that can prevent collagen breakdown but uh, um my two cents worth you if you're going to really if you're serious just do, do something powerful and the final question that we will ask from the listeners is a poor strips bad poor strips um <sighs> that, that's a hard question but it, it's Everyone likes pore strips because, you know, you get that satisfaction when you're putting it on your nose and you peel it out and next thing you know you've got <laughs> five centimetre long frigging filaments coming out. Um, it mm. serves no purpose um, because it's just going to reform. Uh, if, if that rocks your boat, by all means, uh, from a derm point of view, whether it's going to cause long-term damage, is prob- the answer is no. Um the but if you really want to prevent things, so uh, we've touched on it again with the alpha hydroxy acids in the retinoids, um, that can reduce the amount of um filaments that you get in blackhead. Yeah, well, thank you First for joining us. Year. Where can our listeners find you? Ah, so um, Instagram, so I usually post something um at 101.skin. So if you're after more explanations, more scientific based explanations and what I do on a day-to-day basis. I don't usually dish out skincare advice. I usually, I inject, cut, laser, or peel. Um, those are the four things. Um, but 101.skin for what I do is a normal, um, in my normal day. Um, but if you want some skincare advice, uh, Dr. Davin Lim or YouTube. Perfect. Well, thank you very much. And we'll see everyone on next week of Cosmic Chicks. Chicks.